All right, now I'm going to read this morning's scripture. So please follow along with me on your bulletins or in your Bibles on Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Nehemiah 1. The words of... Okay, you know what? I'm sorry. Is, yeah, thanks, Brian. Uh, Nehemiah 1, 1 through 11. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayers of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are faithful, I will scatter you. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the earth, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name, and give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. All right, good morning, everyone. I'm excited to uh, introduce to you Lockwood Holmes this morning. Um, I'm taking the, the morning off, and uh, Locke and I spoke some time ago about him taking a turn. Lockwood is an, an elder on sabbatical, which means that um, he is still um, functioning in that role without carrying out some of the specific duties. And um, I want you to know that um, Locke takes the responsibility of coming up here and standing before you very seriously, and, and I know that he's studied and prepared, and we've prayed together that this time would be meaningful and encouraging to you all. Locke and I have been friends for many years, and um, his friendship uh, means very much to me. We have uh, the kind of friendship that um, we can talk about personal things, uh, private things, and there's a level of friendship and accountability there that, that makes our relationship very healthy. So. I'm very grateful, and thank you for putting in the time, Lockwood. Can I have a couple people from the band come up real quick? We're going to do a quick illustration. So, John, do you mind jumping up? Shane, Heather, that'll work. That'll work. All right, let me turn this thing on real quick. I've never used this microphone. This is super fancy. We've upgraded as a church. Really? <laughs> Oh, yeah, I can make a couple comments on that. <laughs> so, if you guys don't mind, so, first of all, Brian, I sent Brian a text, and, and I always have a hard time naming my sermons, 
and I sent him a text saying the name of the sermon was going to be, what's it say, Brian, on the... Yeah. Uh, turning our hearts. Turning our hearts, but it's really tuning our hearts. And I thought I mistexted him, but then I looked at it and it says tuning our hearts, so you messed up, not me. Oh. <laughs> 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 no, I'm just kidding. That's usually me, especially when it's texting. I'm not a great texter. Hey, so if you guys don't mind, take us through. We're going to talk about the concept of tuning real quick. Take us through just the, uh, the progression of in Christ alone. Just like, oh, okay. yeah, just play it. So if you don't mind playing together. All right, stop. Now I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do what my kids do to me while I'm playing. I'm gonna do your top string. Okay. So now play it and hammer that string really hard. So. Okay, stop. Okay, stop. Obviously, it doesn't sound like we're very much together. Now, give give Shane an E and, and, and let Shane oh, tune boy, it back. Here we go. Here we go. Okay, see? Okay, play. Keep, now play one more. There you go. A one, two. All right. Good. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so the point of that is, I'm not going to try to get too crazy deep on that analogy, but um, so there one one more thing that could have happened, and I didn't want to do it because it would have taken forever. But I could have gone and tweaked all their strings, right? And then I could have said, okay, I want you guys to figure out without a tuner how to get back in line with each other from, uh, you know, being in the right key. And, and I don't know who, you know, someone probably, you know, they're probably pretty close to get into the right pitch or the right key. Usually what you do is you try to find one string. Okay, that sounds about right. And then you tune your rest of your strings to that. And then everyone kind of tunes together, essentially. So they could have played, even though they wouldn't have had any idea what the right key is, they could have tuned to each other. And you guys wouldn't have known that that's proper tuning or not proper tuning because it would have sounded like they're playing together. So this is where we're at in culture today, okay? Um, we have moral relativism where we try to compare ourselves to each other all the time and tune to that to decide what we, how in, to derive our identity or how good we think we are. Um, and obviously there's a problem with that. If we're looking at social media all the time and we're just trying to come in line with what we think is good and right, and I mean the left saying one thing, the right saying one thing, and then it's just like this real subjective boggle of what's right and what's wrong. Um, and we live in this kind of post-modern, post-Christian culture where the anchors to what is truth is all over the place. It's completely subjective. And a lot of time it's very emotional. So the point of that is, as we take a look at the scripture in Nehemiah this morning, the title of the sermon is Tuning Our Hearts, right? How can we continue to tune our hearts to the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning. So we're going to take a look at how Nehemiah tunes his heart. And I don't want us to tune our hearts to Nehemiah just as much as I don't want us to tune our hearts to Brian Kelly or tune our hearts to the last book we read or tune our hearts to some great sermon we heard. We are called to tune our hearts to Jesus and to the gospel. And as you see, if you, as you read through the Old Testament and the New Testament, Old Testament is pointing all towards the coming of the Messiah 
and then the New Testament is pointing back to what Jesus did. And they're deriving their tuning, their anchor in Jesus Christ. Anything else is going to leave you hungry. It's like eating marshmallows and trying to have sustenance. You know, we're trying to eat steak. And it's hard because there's so many distractions today. So hopefully we can put a steak dinner in front of us this morning and start trying to eat a little bit. I like steak and eggs for breakfast anyway. So, um, C.S. Lewis has this quote. Um, oh, well. Um, it says, Such is the tragic comedy of our situation. We continue to clamor for those very qualities we are rendering impossible. You can hardly open a periodical day without coming across the statement that what our civilization needs is more drive or more dynamism or self-sacrifice or creativity. In a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chests and expect expect them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the geldings fruitful. We castrate and bid the geldings fruitful. That's a very powerful statement right there. We expect our children to have kids and we cut off their testicles or remove the eggs from a woman and expect there to be a baby. So when you remove the organ, the heart, from something, it cannot function. And so the problem is we're trying to solve all these issues that we're dealing with day to day with all these peripheral answers and we're missing the heart of the concept. So this morning we're going to talk about what does that organ look like and, and how did Nehemiah approach going back to the heart of the matter. So I want to start kind of before we get into Nehemiah and I didn't know this prior to preparation for my sermon so uh, if you don't know it, you're, it's okay. Um, I want to start with kind of the big picture narrative, um, kind of the historical context of the Bible. So there's kind of four major pieces but there's one story Throughout this whole Bible, there's four major acts, let's just call it. You have creation, God created the world, you know, the heavens and the earth. You have fall, Adam and Eve ate, you know, disobeyed God. Um, then you have redemption, Christ dying on the cross, and then you have restoration. So we have creation, we have the fall, redemption, restoration, and everything kind of falls within those acts, um, and so kind of where we are in regards to, before we open right up to Nehemiah, Nehemiah is paving the way for the coming of the Messiah. You see, because he knows the story, the promises, the covenants. You know, you have, he knows the stories of Moses, of Abraham, the covenant God made with Abraham, that there was this Messiah to come through the, through the Davidic line, through David, through the kings. He knows that the story is coming. So where we jump into the story of Nehemiah, it's in preparation for the coming Messiah. The problem is Nehemiah and the Jews are in exile at this point. Now, Nehemiah, where it, where it falls chronologically in the Bible, it's, it's kind of the, the final act before the curtain closes and then Jesus inserts himself. Um, chronologically, it's at the end, but if you open your Bible to Nehemiah, you see it's kind of in the, in the middle but um, just wanted to kind of l- let you guys know there because it, it kind of gives you some more context. Historically speaking, around th- 1000 BC is where you have the great kings. You know, we, we have Abraham, we have Moses, you know, leading the, um, the Jews out of, of, of exile, the Israelites out of exile in Egypt, coming into the promised land. And once they are the promised land, they establish themselves to begin to have kings. 
you know, and it, and it moves forward into the big moment was having King David and Solomon. Those are, that's as good as it gets from an earthly perspective in, in regards to the Israelites on this earth and their power, you know, and their vast, um, you know, fingers of, 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 and of, of um, kind of ruling. And so about 1000 BC, you have, you know, King David and Solomon, and then the Assyrians kind of started to gain power then. And then in 586 uh, BC, you have, sorry, I'm kind of spitting. Let me point that back just a little bit. Um, in 586, you have the, Babel, the beginning of the Babylonian, really, empire, and the Babylonians, King Nebuchadnezzar comes in and sacks Jerusalem, destroys the temple, and then takes the best and the brightest people into Babylonian. Um, and uh, that's where you get the story of Daniel and the king tries to assimilate them into the culture, but Daniel's able to maintain his identity even though he's outside of Jerusalem. And so after that happens, about 100 years later, I think it's around 539. So 586, you have Jerusalem sacked. 539, the Persian Empire begins to take hold. And so um, they just basically take over the Babylonian Empire. And you have three major kings that really kick that off. You have King Cyrus, King Darius, and King Artaxerxes. Um, I don't know if that's how you pronounce. Brian Renner can correct. Artaxerxes. Okay. Okay. (laughs) There you go. Um, And that's kind of where the story picks up. So you got the final act. This is the final act before the coming of the Messiah. And we'll see kind of how Nehemiah is very aware historically of where he is. He understands the, the ultimate picture of the covenant that, that God had made with the Israelites, and he wants to prepare the way for the Messiah. So let's open up to, um, let's open up to Nehemiah 1 and see how Nehemiah tunes his heart. And here's the thing. I, I've, written, I've read a lot of books on, I'm constantly trying to figure out vocation, calling, all these words, um, you know, where I fit in, in God's story, and um, it's probably fairly hedonistic at times. It definitely is. Uh, and I ultimately keep coming back to, well, it's preparing your heart to be a part of his story. And this morning, he wants to prepare your hearts to be a, star- a part of his restorative narrative. So let's take a, a look at how Nehemiah approaches that. So if we understand how Nehemiah approaches it, maybe we too can take this approach to how we are preparing ourselves to be part of God's narrative and his restorative process. So I'm going to kind of read through it and talk through it. So uh, chapter 1, verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. Verse 4, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourn for days as I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So, so if you're going to write something down on the bulletin, I would say step one, um, or point one, you see Nehemiah having a heart of flesh. In Ezekiel 11:19, it 
It talks about, that God talks about removing the heart of stone from the Israelites and giving them a heart of flesh. And what they mean by heart of flesh, we're not talking, a lot of times people will talk about, I'm either in the flesh or the spirit. When we use the word flesh here, we're talking about a sensitive, empathetic heart. So you see, as, as he develops empathy, as he has a realization of what's happening, he is burdened by his brothers that are in Jerusalem. They tried to rebuild the, the, the temple in, 15, in, in, in uh, 516 BC, but, but failed. And so their city is ruined. And he's like, well, how can the, the, the Messiah come to this city that's in total ruin? And so, um, and so when he hears that there's still this shame going on, that the walls aren't built, he goes into just, he goes to his knees. So having a heart of flesh, truly trying to find out someone's contextual situation in their life, it drives you to your knees. Um, there's a guy named Gary Haugen, who's the CEO and founder of International Justice Mission, which is the largest anti-slavery organization in the world. And he said, if you're not in a line of work where you're being driven to your knees every 30 minutes, you know, you're missing out on the adventure of life. But the thing is, it doesn't matter what that line of work is. It's all relative. I know I need to be driven to my knees every 30 minutes. I got to talk to different people. We all have stuff that we're dealing with on a regular basis, yet carnally, we're always trying to, to figure out how to plug and play those instead of being driven to our knees. You see, because, and we'll get into chapter two in a minute, but this prayer is basically what prayer that, this is the prayer that Nehemiah prayed for 40 days. Um, it's kind of a summary or a best of the prayer that he prayed for 40 days to his knees, asking God, you know, prepare my heart. But w- let's see what happens. So as he goes into verse 5, so, so verse 4, having, an empath- having empathy, having a heart of flesh. Um, let me make sure I'm not missing anything really good. I'll just skip over most. Let's see. Um, so and one thing to think about, too, where is he giving you empathy right now? Now, it's funny because as, as a church, we have a million things going on to make this Sunday service happen. And oftentimes, people are more aware of certain flaws or certain things that we could do differently. So the Lord is actually giving us like a little bit of an empathy into that situation. However, you know, oftentimes it, it could potentially harvest itself in bitterness or criticism. And so I would just ask you this morning, if God's giving you empathy on a certain situation, either confront it and talk about it, do something about it, or just have grace. But carrying that with you, it's not worth it. That's, that's, that's um, it's sin, honestly. So, um, so empathy can be a great thing, but how you handle that also is, is very important. So verse five, and I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Verse six, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to, to hear the prayer of your servant, that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I, my father's house, have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you, have not kept the commandments and statutes and the rules that you commanded your servants, Moses. So there's this confession element because you see, Anytime we come, the law is a tutor for us. So anytime we come next to the law, we look at the Ten Commandments, we fail. We are major idol worshipers. We don't even get past the first commandment. 
So anytime we take a look at the law, we fail, and therefore that should drive us to the knee, your knees. If you read through the Psalms, you see David, he, he holds the law in such a high view. He doesn't try to justify himself to, 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 to abide by the law. He just holds himself next to the law, the law and realizes that he can't even come close to fulfilling the law. It drives him to his knees. So as he comes, as Nehemiah comes next to the awesomeness of God, it drives him to his knees and said, we have failed you as a people. I have failed you. My house has failed you. So you have this kind of empathy, right? This heart of flesh. You know, and, and all of a sudden, he's, fi- he's figuring out truth and what's happening. He takes a look at the law. He, he sees how they're failing. It drives him to his knees. And then there's this confession. There's this life of repentance. Okay, so now from this, this valley, so to speak, coming in, in touch with the true depravity of ourselves in light of what God expects of, of, of us in the law, we are driven to our knees. There's this uh, poem. It's called uh, The Valley of Vision. Uh, I think we're going to throw it up here. I'm going to read it really quick. Um, Thou hast brought me to the valley, and this is an old Puritan prayer. Thou hast brought me to the valley of vision where I live in the depths but see in the heights. Hemmed in by the mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that, that to give is to receive, that the valley of, is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from the deepest wells, And the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. You want vision for your life? Go to your knees. This is how Nehemiah is gaining his vision. This is how he's tuning his heart to prepare for the call. We're going to see action in a minute, but this is preparation of the call. So we have developing a heart of flesh. We have confession and repentance. Then we have remembering God's promises. You see, he says, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, this is verse eight, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight and fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And then he says, now I was the cupbearer to the king. So all of this takes place, this process takes place before he petitioned God petitions God, and this had been taking place for 40 days. So we were exposed initially to what the problem is. It breaks his heart. He goes to his knees. He realizes the covenantal promise that God has given him, that the Messiah is going to come through their line. So they need to prepare. So he's like, Jerusalem is not prepared. They're in shame. They're in ruins. God, here am I. What can I do? Prepare my heart. I'm just a cupbearer for the king. So, this is when it gets really cool. And 
So that was all preparation. Chapter one is stuff that every single one of us can do every single day. We don't know what God's call is going to specifically look or how it might play out on a daily basis, weekly basis for the next 10, 20 years. But if we prepare our hearts and we tune our hearts, we'll be prepared when he calls. Um, so there's another C.S. Lewis quote here I want to read. Uh, it would seem that the Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is deferred to us, excuse me, is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday, of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. It's kind of getting back to that, what I was t- telling you about um, the life of adventure, Gary Haugen. If you're driven, when, when Gary Haugen talks about kind of every 30 minutes I'm driven to my knees, if you are being driven to your knees and you have to depend on God, there's more apathy and complacency in the church today than there's ever been. Look at us. Look how comfortable it is. It wasn't until like, you know, the fires are always a great example of resetting everything for us. We came together more as a community. I built more relationship with people in this church and in this community than I ever have because we put up these walls and we've become apathetic. So having a heart of flesh, that's going to drive, Lord, I, I pray right now, Father, that you give us a heart of flesh, that today people walk away with an understanding or a deeper desire to build relationships with people, to tear down some of those walls and see that people are struggling and we are hurting and we are lonelier than we've ever been before, even though we're, quote unquote, more connected than we've ever been before. Um, and C.S. Lewis puts it so brilliantly as he does everything. So, and he says, you know, we, we are uh, a child who wants to be, go on making mud pies in the slum when we could be at holiday at the sea, we experiencing, when you have to depend on God for your every next move, and you're living that adventurous life, you know, whether that's, God, who can you put in line, in, in, in front of me today where I can talk about the Lord, or give me an opening to talk, I, I'm not this super bold person that loves to talk about Jesus with people, however, the Lord seems to open these random doors, and all of a sudden, you build a relationship with them, and the next thing you know, if this is what you truly believe, and this is your anchor, and this is what you're tuning your heart to, it naturally will come out every single time, and the Lord will provide those opportunities for you. I can think of hundreds of examples. Tune our hearts, Father God. There's, there's that, um, that, that line, and uh, I think it's come thou fount, tune our hearts to sing thy grace. Tune our hearts to sing thy grace. Um, so let's see here. So before I kind of land this thing, I want to talk about one last thing. In John 4, it talks about, uh, Jesus talks about, this is one of my favorite scriptures. It's the woman at the well. So the disciples and, and Jesus had been in Jerusalem and they're kind of journeying on, on the way back and they run into town uh, and they're kind of journeying and they come to this town and there's a well kind of on the outskirts of town and, and Jesus sends the disciples in to go get some food and drink. And it's, I think it's about the middle of the day. It's the hottest part of the day. And he comes up to the well, and there's this lady that's, that's there, and she's by herself because, you see, I think she felt very lonely and judged by a lot of people and, and, and the way that she was living her life. And she didn't want to be there at the well when a lot of the other women are there fetching the water. 
So um, Jesus walks up to her and says, uh, ma'am, do you, could you fetch me some water? And she goes, well, what are you doing as a male, me a female, as a Jew and me a Samaritan asking me to do that? Like, we don't talk. And he said, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for water. And, and John 4, um, let's see, John 4, 13 and 14, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling to eternal life. So talk about grounding and tuning and anchoring ourselves. Jesus has eternal water that he wants to give you this morning. He wants you to drink from that, that water. And he wants you to be a part of his redemptive, restorative story this morning. There's a reason why you're here. And we're all called towards restoration. So what does that look like? People say it's, it's termed as this sometimes. We live in the already but not yet. Christ has come. He has redeemed us fully. The difference between Christianity and every other religion is it's not works-based. Look at every other religion. It's grace-based. It's not about what we do. We often wear the WWJD bracelet and say, what would Jesus do? It shouldn't be that. It should be like, what did Jesus do? Or what has Jesus done? Because we're living by that. We couldn't do what Jesus did. We, we, we can't. We're sinners. We're saved by the grace of God. But it's what he already did. So when God looks at us, what does he see? He sees his son. He sees the redemptive, just, fully justified person on top of us. We, he sees the blood of his son. Because we hold nothing when we come before God on the judgment seat of, of heaven. We hold nothing there. Um, I'm going to pray this morning. Um, worship man can come up. But I, I just want to ask you, I, I don't... I don't know where you are. If you need to go to, to, to the well and drink this living water, please, we have people that are praying, that will be praying for you this morning that are off to the side. Please come pray with them. If you don't know what living water is, it's the only anchor that will sustain you. Everything else is eating marshmallows. Really. Like we can listen to all the Jocko podcasts. I love Jocko podcasts that we want, but unless we're drinking from living water, it's not going to sustain Sorry, Jocko, for calling you out. I don't think he'll ever listen to this, but it could be any anybody. Um, so let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for, for making us a part of your story this morning. And if we're not a part of your redemptive restoration story, Lord, let us come to the well. Let us come drink from eternal water, Father, that, that will ultimately sustain us. Father, let us come before you with a heart of flesh that you will soften us to realize that we can't even come close to abiding by your law. That, Lord, that we can't, we, we can't continue to try to justify the way that our life is based upon what people are doing or some idea of subjective truth. It's like trying to shoot a moving target. Father, let us be anchored to your word this morning and to your son, Jesus Christ. Um, let us come to our knees in confession. Let us remember your promises that you are here to restore us, that ultimately we can be a part of your plan. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.